Good morning. Good to see everyone again. So today we continue with the Platform Sutra book study session number four. We last time we left off halfway through section 17 and uh, we are going to continue from from there. And as before, whether or not you have read uh, is, is not that important. It's good to read ahead if possible. If it doesn't work out for some reason, you can just follow the, uh, the study session. So, continuing 17. Good friends, no form means externally to be free of all forms. If you can just be free of forms, the body of your nature is perfectly pure. This is why we take no form as our body. To be unaffected by any object is what is meant by no thought. To be free of objects in our thoughts and not to give rise to thoughts about dharmas. But don't think about nothing at all. Once your thoughts stop, you die and are reborn somewhere else. Students of the way, take heed. Do not misunderstand the meaning of this teaching. It's one thing to be, mis- it's one thing to be mistaken yourself, but quite another to lead others astray, then to criticize the teaching of the sutras while remaining unaware that you yourself are lost. Thus, the reason we proclaim no thought as our doctrine is because deluded people think in terms of subject, sorry, of object, and on the basis of this thought, they give rise to erroneous views. This is the origin of all afflictions and delusions. Nevertheless, when this school proclaims no thought as its doctrine, those people who transcend object and who don't give rise to thoughts, even though they have no thoughts, they do not then proclaim no thought. What does no thought negate? And what thought is thought about? No negates dualities and afflictions. And thought is thought about the original nature of reality. Reality is the body of thought. And thought is the function of reality. When your nature gives rise to thought, even though you sense something, remain free and unaffected by the words of objects. The Vimalakirti Sutra says, externally be skilled and distinguishing the attributes of dharmas and internally remain unshaken by the ultimate truth. So, Commentary, Bill Porter says, Here we have another view of Huineng's non-dual dialectic, thoughts, thought and reality, which he refers to earlier as nature and mind. If thought is the function of reality, then thought is our nature. And if reality is the body of thought, then reality is our mind. To know reality is to know our mind. And to see our thoughts is to see our nature. But if we stop to think about our thoughts, if we make our thoughts into objects or concepts, we separate them from the reality from which they are born and from which they can be separated in names only. 
As long as we don't grab hold of thought and reality and think they actually refer to anything other than our own nature and our own mind, we walk the same path as Hui Neng walked 1300 years ago. So what he's saying here is that the creation of something happens in real time while we, actually while we meditate, right? So we see ourselves as the one who may be observing thoughts. And if, we see, if, we see, if I see myself as the one who is observing thoughts, then there is a problem. Uh, let's see, uh, one second. Then there is a problem of subject and object. Then there is the, the one who is observing and what is being observed. And if I look at something and I create something of what arises, that, then that becomes a thing. And when I do that, I create a separation. As soon as I do that, I create a separation. So, before we move on to 18, uh, any thoughts, any um, questions about that? Or is it fairly clear? Somebody's shaking their head. Kako, is that a good shake? It's just it's just a very difficult concept to grasp. You know, it's like we sit, I mean, I can always for myself sit down in Zazen and say, okay, I'm going to calm the mind. Um, um, I mean, one way I think about it is, well, I have thoughts, but I'm not going to attach to them. Right. But um, there's also something to be said for contemplating Mu, you know, but there's also something to be said for just looking at whatever is racing in my brain and saying, okay, that's what's going on. Right, so what, we're, what this is talking about is not, no negation at all, right? So everything you just stated, everything you just itemized, right? It's all fine. The issue is not with that because it's all the nature of reality. It's all who we are, what we are, right? The, the issue uh, arises from, or at the second of attachment, right? At the second of here's something, right? When I see it as something, then there is something to be let go of. And there is someone that can either grasp or let go. Right? And, and what he's saying here, if you're, not, if you're not engaged in that kind of thinking about thoughts, then there is no grasping. It's not that you have to let go. Again, this is the challenge of letting go we try to let go, but there is nothing there to let go of. And there's no one there who is grasping. In this, nothing to let go of and no one there grasping, we create stuff to hold on to and the one who is holding on. And how do we perpetuate it? By, keep, by doing the same thing again and again, right? So, so the second noble truth, right? We, we suffer because we attach. Because of the process of attachment, we suffer. And that's, that's what that means, right? So to see everything as everything. If everything is everything, then everything is everything, right? So, so the, the totality and the particularity are non-dual. There is, in terms of appearances, yes, there are different appearances. But each occurrence or, or each particular is non-dual in terms of that and 
totality. Or it is totality. So within totality, where are the gaps? We, as soon as we stop, there is a gap, right? As soon as I stop to think about something, there is someone and something. When in the flow, who is doing what? Who is thinking about what? So, but anyway, he continues. He's, with, he's, asking, he's asking us not to get too far into the void. Is that right? He's asking us not to get sort of lost in the... Um, nothingness or somethingness. Nothingness or somethingness. Right. Either way, yes. we want to both ends. Okay. Because nothing becomes something. Doesn't it? Right. Yeah. Nothing become that's actually the process of nothingness becoming somethingness. That's exactly what happens. In fact, that's the process we want to see, view, right? See that as it happens and then again hands off. Yeah. Right? Okay. We move on and we will we see will another go hand. We I will, see another hand. Another hand. Okay, Myogen. No, I just wanted to say this speaks to what we were talking about last week about experiencing rather than creating more, right? Yes, being immersed in that and also watching, watching that we don't create someone for, something or someone from the watcher, which is something that uh, I, I think we... Well, he's going to get into that uh, in the next... or this one or the next uh, part, but... Uh, and we will talk about that, but we have to we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of thinking that there is an observer, because that also becomes a thing. So anyway, we'll get into that. Eighteen, good friends, in this school of the Dharma, when we practice Zen, we do not contemplate the mind, and we do not contemplate purity. And we don't talk about being dispassionate. If someone says to contemplate the mind, the mind is basically a delusion. And because a delusion is the same as an illusion, there is nothing to contemplate. If someone says to contemplate purity, your nature is already pure. It's because of deluded thoughts that reality is obscured. But once you are free of deluded thoughts, your original nature is pure. If you do not see your nature, that your nature is already pure, and you rouse the mind, your mind to contemplate purity, you create the delusion of purity instead. You, by doing that, he's saying, you create the delusion, the delusion of purity. And creating that creates a gap, creates again another duality. A delusion has no actual location, which is how we know what we contemplate is a delusion. Now, statements like that, right? So it's not that we should just take it as it is, face value. We should look at it. We should look for it, right? As, as, uh, as, as Huike did, right? So Bodhidharma told Huike, fine, bring me that which you claim to be substantiated. Bring me your mind. Show it to me. Show it to yourself. 
right? So, and he's saying here, a delusion has no actual location, which is how we know what we, what we contemplate is a delusion. This is not, a, this is not a statement. Uh, it is more an instruction, a suggestion, a guidance for us to go and do, rather than, than sit on the assumption that there is something there. Look at it. What is it sitting on? What is supporting that? And then, and purity has no form, he says. If someone establishes a form for purity and thinks that they have achieved something, those who hold such views separate themselves from their own nature and become trapped by purity instead. Anything essentially can be a trap if we make something of it. And if someone cultivates dispassion, as long as they don't pay attention to the faults of others, their nature is dispassionate. But deluded people act dispassionate, then open their mouths and talk about right and wrong and turn their backs on the way. Meanwhile, contemplating the mind and contemplating purity are actually what separates them from the way. So it's the contemplation itself that creates a gap. And it doesn't matter what we contemplate. We say, well, I'm contemplating something good. That's, that's irrelevant because I'm creating something of something which I proclaim is good. And that creates a gap between what I proclaim is good and what I think is bad. So before right and wrong, before good and evil, as he said, to Monk Mio, who are you? What is there before you attach to the idea of right or the idea of wrong? So commentary, Bill Porter. In this section, Huineng addresses meditation practices that are harmful, practices that prevent people from understanding the true nature of reality and their own nature. These same practices were later attributed to the Northern School of Zen. The terms contemplating the mind, contemplating purity, and imperturbability or dispassion were in fact used by Zen masters affiliated with the Northern School. But how they understood these terms is another ma matter. Of course, there have always been those who understand them in the way that Hui Neng suggests, even during the Buddha's time. In any case, Hui Neng's point in using them is not to criticize people because of their different styles of teaching, but because of the effectiveness or ineffectiveness of the methods. And any method that creates new layer of delusions instead of transforming existing ones is to be avoided. Or at least we have to be aware we have to be aware of how we're practicing, basically. Not what they did in the North and the South, but really, how am I practicing? What am I doing with the practice? Now, uh, the term contemplate the mind. The usual instructions are to watch thoughts rise and fall or to watch them float past the calm lake of our minds. Thus, the actual practice isn't so much contemplating the mind as it is the thoughts that appear and disappear in the mind. Still, the problem with this practice is that it separates thoughts from the mind, 
when in fact thoughts are the mind. Which is a very, this is the point that we have to uh, look at. Thoughts are the mind. Right? He's saying, as we just learned in the previous section, thoughts are the functions of reality. To know this is to know the mind. So this is avoiding the duality of subject and object. Right? So, and traditionally, and this is what we talked about before, traditionally, there is the one who is bearing witness, we may say, right? The one who is observing, or the observer, as sometimes it is referred to. And we have to be really careful with that because we are creating an observer and we think that the observer is a thing that is watching something else that comes and goes. And what he's saying here is that what we are watching is not different than the one who is watching. It's a very important point, right? Because we can, we can, we can go from one shell to another or one cocoon to another or one trap to another thinking we are practicing correctly. So while, yes, there is the awareness, but the awareness is not different than what it is aware of, is what he's saying here. So let's, uh, let's see where we're at with this. Any questions, any, any comments on that? Yes, Sigyoku, good morning. 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 So I, I find that um, it's a process. I can't help it that I see the watcher as a thing and the object as a thing and that they're separate. But um, I try to keep the knowing that that's a delusion. But in the same time, the only thing I can do is to be aware of the watcher, the object, and the whole. So, um, so in in practice. Mm -hmm. uh, so um, right. That's all. Right, and it may be very useful. Right, it, it, what you're saying, what you're talking about, may be useful. But uh, but it but we have to watch not to make it more than that. So if 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 I am, well, here's the thing, right? So there is the watching, right? Observing or sensing what comes and goes, right? Which is fine. There is that. There there are different experiences. But what we have to be careful of is not fixating on the one who is observing. While there may be the observation process, right? As you say, it is a process. That's fine. But as long as we don't create something substanti substantial from the watcher, from the witnessing presence, right? And separate that from what arises and vanishes, then it's fine. Then it may work. Right? We just have to watch the way we watch, maybe. Right? And not to create the watcher of the watcher, because then again, we have the same problem, right? Because it becomes fixed. And that's the thing, right? Because essentially what we're talking about is the same as Buddhas do not know that they're Buddhas. Right? Using Dogen's terminology, right? You don't know. When you don't know, there is a different kind of knowing. Or we can call it a non-dual kind of knowing. 
Because the knowing, the known, and what, and the one who is knowing, are non-dual. The one mind is the one mind. Whatever we do with it, we look at it this way, we look at it that way. It is essentially only all inclusive, right? Within that, we 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 uh, create some ideas of right and wrong, right? This is good. This is bad. I like this. I don't like that. All of it is within the one mind, not more or less. All of it is equally arising and vanishing within the one mind. The fact that we like it or dislike it is actually irrelevant. So, but yes, it's a process. Thank you. Uh, anyone else? Daibo, good morning. Morning, everyone. Um, so the, the, the notion of not knowing, I think, is important here in the sense that, you know, when we, when we identify something and we name it, there is a namer and something to be named. And that in itself creates the separation, wherein if we allow if we allow reality to arise and fall naturally as it does and experience it directly without that naming process, we avoid the trap of being separated from what it is that we're actually experiencing. Right. Right. Thank you. So, so, so the, the term allowing is a good example, right? The term allowing is, is uh, skillful, right? It's skillful, but it's not true. Relatively, it may be true, Right. But whether we allow or not, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, right? You know, we, it's the same way, you know, in the same way, whether we, 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 uh, whether we go along with impermanence or not, is, it doesn't matter, right? We are of an impermanent nature, whether we agree with it, whether we hide from it, whether we accept it or not, it doesn't matter, right? So, so the, the word allowing, we can use it, but we have to watch how we use it. Because, you know, allowing and not allowing... Things are as they are. We are as we are. Eyes open, eyes closed. Right, but it's 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 the acknowledgement of that is what we're practicing. Yes. Right. It's that acknowledgement is our practice. Yes. So I, I agree with you. The term allowing is an expedient means, but we don't have any other way to approach this, you know, other than you know easily falling into nihilism and saying nothing matters, everything is what it is, I'm a doormat. But that's not what we're doing, right? What we're doing is we're going beyond that to, to try to directly experience everything in the moment without a separation, without a gap. So without naming and without trying to fix things. Yes. I think is the point here. Right, so right. Uh, and also in terms of uh, skillfulness, naming has skillfulness, right? As long as we understand that the naming is temporal, that the naming is made up, right? That, that even while we name, fixating is not possible. Conceptually it is, but in reality it's just not possible. Because right, yeah, right. it's made up. Yeah, and, and you know, and and that's and that's a, a, a true dilemma, right? In order to function, we need to name things, right? But it's can you can you 
can you name something and 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 leave it at that and and not attach and let that name change right you know like you know we we use this example all the time like like you know if you take your own name your dharma name or whatever name you have if you see that thing as an unchanging idea mm-hmm. right then you're always going to struggle right. with what it is that you're encountering so to to be able to name yourself mm-hmm. but yet have that name be fluid and always changing um you know is is a metaphor that we can use i think right so the name the name is 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 there but what the name is referring to is something that is constantly in flux and that right. that that is the point right so the name and this is what we have to be careful not not thinking that the name creates something that is not constantly changing right so you know you wake up in the morning and you look in the mirror and well yeah here's here's Daibo, right and that's the same Daibo of yesterday that's not true yes we call it Daibo, but there in reality there is no Daibo. that Daibo is constantly moving and changing we don't see ourselves that way right well, right. I mean, on, on one level, uh, uh, of course, you know, we have to function. So you don't go introduce yourself to people every day. My name is Daibo and uh, who are you, right? So there is that sense of while we continue, there is familiarity, right? Because we change so slowly to the eye, right? To the naked eye that we don't see that unless we look at a picture from 20, 30, 40 years ago, then we don't see that. And that makes it easier for us to function, right? Right. But the fact that it's very slow doesn't mean it's not happening constantly. And, right, it is always happening. We are always changing. You're not Daibo of yesterday. What you refer to Daibo yesterday is not what you refer to Daibo today. Yes. Because it's shifting. Right. All the time. But then and we create the idea. That that's a helpful way to look at, at the practice, right? That's like something that's that's right in front of us that we can easily grasp, you know, ourselves, our, our bodies, our physical environment. Yes. It's not the same, like you say, as it was yesterday. And it won't be different tomorrow. And others, right? So you meet, you see somebody, you know, somebody at work, and, you know, you, you see the person, but you already see the, you don't see the person, you see the fixed ideas about the person from past experiences. Right. While right. things did happen the way they happened, that's not true. It is true. It, it was true. But what is happening now is different because it has changed or it is constantly changing. Right. Thank you. Uh, Myogen, go ahead. No, I just, this reminds me of um, a book or an article I read a long time ago that the brain actually recognizes um, a memory a memory of a person or a memory of a thing without really seeing that person or thing right because what we see is what we think about what we see and because we're attached to what to 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 the one who's seeing or to what we see or what we want to see then we become blinded to what's in front of us Yes, so if we yeah. don't pay attention to what's in front of us, we're really just seeing what we create in our own mind or what we remember from yesterday. Right, and you know, and and of course, the the the, the fear in that is that 
if it's const- if I'm constantly changing and everything is constantly moving, where do I find myself? Again and again, we come back to that. I cannot find myself other than in my mind. I cannot find myself in reality. Why? Because I am the totality of reality. And reality is marked by constant change. It's a little like um, what uh, Tolly says about needing to know who you are and just not knowing who you are and that's okay. Right, which refers to grasping. Yeah, so I just want to read another uh, small part, small section from the commentary about dispassion. Actually, I don't know if I wrote it or it's from the commentary, but I'll read it anyway. Uh, this does not mean to be detached from others or from life. Uh, and I think it's important to, to keep in mind or to understand what that actually means. Uh, the more accurate way to describe it is is unshakable or unmoved by the currents of everyday life or by changing circumstances, and is referring to a state of equanimity in terms of compassion. The less we mind or judge what happens, the more caring we can be. Right. So it's the other way around. It's not nihilism. It's not that we don't care. In fact, when we realize that we are everything, we are eternity. It raises the, the preciousness of life. It raises the preciousness of this being that is expressing eternity. So the being that is interacting with other beings, for example, right? Then, then it raises that the moment we realize this is eternity, right? And it comes with this great responsibility or the question of how am I manifesting? How am I expressing eternity right now, right? And so instead of getting caught up in what I think about it, it can free us from what we think about life to actually interact and merge and flow. So this passion is definitely not not caring. It, it's more... It's better to describe it as not minding. So, any comments, thoughts about that? Or I should ask, is it clear? As mud. Mud's good. <laughs> we live in the mud. Okay. So we move on. So if you're unclear and you don't know what to ask, you can say that, right? If you, are, if you feel too confused to ask a question, you can say, I'm confused to ask a question. So maybe we go back and look at it some more. So 19, uh, section 19. In that case, what do we mean in this school by to practice Zen. In this school by to practice, we mean not to be obstructed by anything and ex- externally not to give rise to thought about object, oh, sorry, about objective states. And by Zen, we mean to see our nature without being confused. And what do we mean by Zen meditation? 
externally to be free of form is Zen, and internally not to be confused is meditation. Externally, if you are attached to form, internally your mind will be confused. But if you are free from form externally, internally, your nature will not be confused. And he's making this connection between what we call inside and outside. We call it inside. We call it outside. It is, even that essentially is non-dual, right? But one affects the other because it is non-dual, because those are two aspects of one reality, we can say. So if those are two aspects of one reality, of course, one aspect will affect the other aspect. We tend to want to separate the two. And again, sometimes in terms of skillfulness, upaya, it works, it's needed. As long as we understand that all those separations are what we create for the sake of understanding how to practice correctly. And then he says, your nature itself is pure and focused. It is just that you come into, when you come into contact with objects and as you come into as you come into contact, you become confused. So because we come into contact naturally, at the moment we come into contact with objects, we become confused because of the way we relate to contacts or people. When you are free of form and not confused, you are focused. To be free of form externally is Zen. Not to be confused internally is meditation. External Zen and internal meditation is what we mean by Zen meditation. So, we, meditation is, has become a thing. Has become a thing that some people like, some people don't like. Um, some people, I mean, practice in different styles of meditation. But what he's saying here is that when we create a thing out of that, we create a thing out of ourselves. And then we either like it or we don't like it. We understand it or we don't understand it. And, and it is important to break down the barrier between what we call meditation and what we call moment-by-moment -moment interaction out of the meditation period. And Zen is not referring to, while Zen, the word itself means meditation, it's not referring to meditation in the way, in the conventional way we see it. It's actually referring to the totality of life rather than to one expression of it. And then just to keep going with that section, the Vimalakirti Sutra says, suddenly, all at once, we return to our original mind. And the Bodhisattva Precept Sutra says, our original nature is pure. Good friends, see the fundamental purity of your own nature. Cultivate and put to work for yourself the Dharma body of your own nature. Practice for yourselves the practice of a Buddha. Begin and complete for yourselves the path to Buddhahood. There's so a comment in the, in the comments. Can you address? It says, how can one work towards integration rather than separation of the two realities, internal and external? From Pixie. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me get to that. So I want to, there's something I want to read in the commentaries and then we can uh, discuss that. <clears throat> like most Chinese, 
Buddhist masters, Huineng loves playing with words and breaking them apart to see what falls out. Here, he uses the two most common expressions associated with his approach to liberation. Tzu Chan, practicing Zen, and Chan Ting, Zen meditation. But instead of examining their etymology or trying to define them in a way that might give us something to hold on to, he uses them to draw us back to the wordless teaching that is the hallmark of Zen. Right? So, so back to what we were saying before about words. As long as we understand that the words refer to no words, we are free to use words. If words become something or if we make something from words, then we are not free to use words. Well, either way, we, we use words. But in one way of doing this, we are free to use words. In another way of doing it, using language, we are not free. We become trapped by the language. And this is there providing us with a set of rules. Practicing, quote-unquote, means no rules or no parameters. Or, in, as we say, to have no parameters is to experience realization. No parameters. When all walls, all divisions fall away, this is realization, because it is the truth. No internal obstructions, no external projections. It's very well put. No internal obstructions, no external projections. And instead of providing us with a new idol to worship, Zen brings us face to face with ourselves. So, uh, let's open that up for a few minutes and then we will, yeah, we will keep going from there. Any questions? Yeah, like I said before, there is, there is one in the, in the chat thing. I don't know if you can read it there. Read it again. Uh, it's from Pixie. I'll read it for them. Okay. Uh, how can one work towards integration? rather than separation of the two realities, internal and external. How can we work towards integration? So, so the work towards integration is to actually do nothing. The less we do, the more we experience integration. Right? It's the doing. In a way, it's the effort. Right? So the, we, 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 talk, we often talk about right effort. Right? What is right effort? And right effort is actually doing less rather than doing more, right? So the less we do, the more we experience what is already there, what is inherent. And all he's talking about here is what is inherent, right? So when he says, turn it around and look at the one, look at, look at yourself, you are the one, right? You are the one you are looking for, which again, you know, even saying it that way creates a separation, right? If I'm the one who, that I'm looking for, then, then what does that mean, right? There is the one who's looking and then there's one who is lost in a way, right? But the one who is lost is the one who is looking. So then something drops, right? There is an extra there. As long as I'm looking for a better way to do it, I may be holding on to a gap. I may be holding on to subject and object. To, to, to arriving somewhere else or being someone else.
So in terms of practice, just be. Stop trying to be something else. Because integration is not, is, we do, it's not that we have to take all those parts and find the best glue to glue them together. Right? It's not about that. It's not that we are, we are, we are putting something together. We are realizing that our delusion is creating a sense of separation. It's only that. The delusion is creating a sense of gap, which we then try to merge. What if we just allow it to be as is and not go with it and experience reality as it is? Then where's the question? Or where's the need to glue all the parts together? So I'm gonna, there's another part here that uh, may shed light on that. As we cultivate this direct practice, Zen becomes the formless form we know and see and hear within us and around us. The formless form that is us. We are that formlessness that we may be seeking. And meditation is not about sitting just so or breathing just so or focusing our minds just so. Meditation is the mindfulness of an unfettered mind. The mindfulness that enables us to, to penetrate and transform all areas of our lives. Not just our, our time on the meditation cushion, right? Which we often talk about mobilizing the practice. And again, it's just another term that we, we use because it can be effective if we use it well. So to mobilize the practice is to not create a compartment of meditation or the one who is meditating and then the one who is actualizing the meditation in everyday life is to completely break down. So when you sit, the whole world is sitting. There's nobody who is not sitting. The whole world is eternally sitting on a cushion. And when you get up, the entire world is up, walking about. No before, no after. Everybody is included. Now, how can that not be precious? Right? How can that not be precious? The whole world is you. Right? It's an incredible thing. It says externally to be free of form is Zen. Internally not to be confused is meditation. Now I want to bring up a commentary uh, from a Kwan, the Shoyoroku. And it says, if you are still, you sink into stagnant water. If you move, you are limited to the present. Thus, when going outward, do not react. When going inward, do not dwell in emptiness. Outwardly not pursuing ramifications, inwardly not abiding in trance. It's very pertinent, right? Because this is how we often practice, right? So we may, we may actually abide in trance. This feels amazing. I don't want to do anything, right? And then we get up and then we react to things and people. And we're going to go back to the meditation cushion. Why? Because it feels good. But the meditation itself can create 
a barrier if we're not practicing correctly. And often people see that. You know, people may think of practitioners as people who just want to calm down and separate themselves from the world, which is not true. We walk around separating ourselves from the world. This is how we function. We function within a bubble. And, and correct meditation, correct practice, is meant to burst that bubble. The bubble of me and you, self and other. So within that, there is the quietude states of mind and there is the chaotic states of mind. There is what we call good, there is what we call bad. It's all there, all the time. We may jump between this and that, between feeling calm and feeling chaotic. But again, all of it is the one mind. And none of it is fixed. Does that work? So I want to read something from uh, Halada who talked about that state of being. And he said, children with their simple naivete can be closer to this wisdom than our adults who always add on extra thinking. So he's referring to a kid. He says, how old are you? I don't know. Where is your house? I forget. It can seem that children are making fools of people, but they really forget because they are so busy playing and being fully involved in this present moment. Thus, it is said that the patriarch's mind is very close to a child's mind. So, Huineng's mind is like a child's mind. It's a, it is a very profound way of simplicity. It's deeply profound. Now, of course, you know, when we are children, this is how we function. It's very natural. Then later on, we grow up and we add stuff. We put layers. Then we start to think about self and other. We think about it, it becomes something. And then, uh, as Rinzai put it, in each and every mind moment, not adding on any secondary thinking or any associations is worth more than 10 years of pilgrimage or training at the, at the, door, at the Zendo. When you see or hear something, leave it at that first perception. Don't think about what has yet to happen. Always be fresh and ready for whatever happens. Then in each moment, the wisdom needed or the wisdom you need comes forth spontaneously. This is Prajna Paramita. This is the same as a child's mind. And this is from Rinzai. Live it as it is. So something arises. And what happens when we don't become reactive? We do not react. As, as you were saying here, when, uh, let me see, when going out, outward, do not react. When going inward, do not dwell in emptiness. Don't make anything of anything. Then when we act this way, when, when we function this way, what is there to merge? What are we trying to put together? We're already put together. Right? As we say, the meal has long been cooked. We don't have to do anything. Right? This is why it is says that 
said that, you know, active all day, she does nothing. Active all day, she does nothing because she's lost. She, the person, is lost in the doing. Not lost in terms of being confused. But what is lost is the extra. And the person is the extra. So, so the observer is the extra to life. So, clear, unclear? How about Rezan? We need to hear from him. Good morning. Good morning. Um, the phrase that is, I think, the most powerful of the, the sections that we've been going over is um, thoughts are the function of reality. Um, that just seems almost overwhelming to me that, um, that thoughts that are not ours, they're not our property, they're not our, ours. Um, it's just this flow that uh, there's just, um, and the image that um, I get along with this is um, uh, we are, I forget what the percentage is, 99.9% .9 empty space, uh, right? The atoms that make up our um, bodies and as they get into molecules and so on and so on. Uh, anyway, the actual material content and all of that is minuscule compared to the form, that word, um, that we think we have and that we present to the world. Um, so that if we were just, if we had different senses, if we could see more quickly, like if we could see at the speed of light, mm -hmm. um, we would realize that our bodies were empty, right? That our, there'd be this tiny little bit of matter and all of this emptiness there. So it, it's an image of almost something like Swiss cheese, that thoughts are moving through us um, and that um, we keep trying to grab different parts of those thoughts as they go through us and hold on to them for different purposes mm -hmm. um but that this great emptiness that is actually thoughts are moving through us thoughts are the function of reality it's not something that has to do with a me or that that um construction again yeah. uh, and that um the more we can let thoughts go through us the more um it seems that um <clears throat> that temporary construction that we are is able to interact with that flow in a way that is productive for everything, right? We become part of the mm -hmm. universe, part of that reality, which is um, flowing through us and flowing through everything else as well. Right. We return home, right? That is, that is homecoming. Right. So, right. so, so the less we do, the more at home we are or the more at home we may experience or feel. The less we try to be somewhere else or something else. Naturally. 
is like Ellen was saying before, it's like Yoko, um, it's a process rather than a place. Right? Yes, it's a process. But actually, I want to go back to that line from Rinzai. What he's saying is at each and every moment, mind moment, he says, not adding any secondary thinking or any associations is worth more than 10 years of pilgrimage or training for 10 years, right? So you could be sitting and sitting and sitting and still be trapped, right? And in one instance, if you don't add anything, you're free or you experience freedom. So, so on, on, on one level, yes, it's a process. On another level, there was no need for process because it's always available. The fact that we cover it up and then it takes us a long time to uncover. It doesn't make it not so all the time. But in terms of practice, actualized practice, or actually practicing, it comes down to not adding anything. That's seeing things as they are, not what I think about it. That's already secondary thinking. What he said, secondary thinking or adding associations. And that is actually moment-by-moment moment practice, that we can do without measuring how often am I doing it, how deeply am I doing it. We don't care about that. That doesn't matter. What matters is that we are doing it. We are becoming aware of how grasping happens, right? How we become uh, uh, intoxicated in a way by our, by our own associations. We love our associations. Even when we hate them, we love them. Or actually hating something is another way of attaching to something. Right? It doesn't matter. You hate it, you attach to it. You love it, you attach to it. You resist or you embrace it. Either way, you attach to it. Do you want to say something? Yeah, so that's the, the, the image. Um, we're talking about the observer, the problems of the observer. Um, so that in this image, the... It's flowing through you at the same time that you are observing, so that there's not a standing apart to uh, be able to see what's flowing. It's um, the the intimacy of that participation. Yeah, it's uh, constant, so that uh, while you are observing, you are also in the immediacy of the flow, uh, which doesn't give the observer any space to stand or to be separated. <coughs> So it is flowing through you, you're flowing through it equally. So, so it's saying the same thing twice. It is flowing through me, I'm flowing through it, is actually redundant. Made up. It is flowing through me, so I have to open up to it to flow through me, right? Well, we say that. Again, it may be good upaya, but it is redundant. In the same way that every wave is the ocean. It's not, well, you know, this wave has to calm down, merge into the ocean. Well, it is the ocean, right? So sometimes the, the, the ocean is choppy and then you see waves separated from the ocean. Well, you know, how do I merge the wave and the ocean? It's, it's, it, there's no question there. We make a question out of that because we feel it's like, you know, spray of, of the ocean, right? You see all kinds of particles and, and, and water right, all over the place, and say, so, well, I, it has to come back to the ocean. It is the ocean, all the time. We may not experience it when, when there is turmoil as much, right? So when, when the mind is choppy, 
we may not realize that we are everything because we feel separated. So, yeah, it's very important. I mean, what he's saying here is really, uh, it, it, it can change the way we view our meditation practice and it needs to change the way we view it. It needs to change the way we view Zen. It's not, well, there is Zen and there is this and there is that and I like Zen for a little while, then I'm going to go practice something else for a little while and we create something from Zen and therefore we think there is Zen and there is other things. That's why Dogen said, there's only one way, which is often misunderstood. People think that he meant that it's only the Zen way. There is no Zen. There is a way, but there is no Zen. So, any other thoughts, comments, questions? Okay. So we move on, and, and there is actually a, in the Tsung Pao edition, there is an additional text between sections 19 and 20 describing Huineng's transmitting five fundamental pillars of practice to everyone who was present at the time. And to signify the importance of this transmission, he uses five incense sticks. Now, as you know, lighting incense uh, is an integrated aspect of our formal practice. And it's done uh, as a way of, off of offering with the intention to elevate the importance of, for example, morning service, uh, ceremony, empowerment event, uh, memorializing someone. Or you can just light an incense stick on your own, offer it to the well-being of all, all creations, of everyone. Actually, we, uh, every time uh, we start class, I start a keto class, I light an incense, everybody line up, lines up. And um, I get on the mat, I bow, I sit in front of the uh, altar, which is the kamiza in, 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 uh, in our case. Kami spirit, za is, is sitting, so it's the dwelling place of the spirit of the dojo. And uh, I offer incense. And then I turn around and we sit, I sit in front of the students and we sit for a long minute and then we bow. We begin the class. And uh, it is a very powerful moment. And in offering the incense, we are offering ourselves. We are letting go. We, we are elevating the moment, the significance of the moment, realizing this is precious. This is precious. This, without defining this, I'm going to give myself fully and completely to this. So... It can go a long way, apart of the fact that there is, there may be scents that are um, that have attributes of purifying the room, or elevate something. But apart of that, just the act of lighting an incense and seeing that act as an act of offering, and the offering is essentially of oneself. I am offering everything I'm holding on to. I'm giving it to the world, or. At that offering, at the instance of offering, it's the drop of ocean merging with the ocean. So there's a lot to that. So in this section, it says, uh, Huineng was saying, this is something you must bring forth from your own nature. Again and again, he's saying, look at yourself. 
at all times, thought after thought, purify your own mind, cultivate yourself, do, do it yourself, see your own Dharma body, see the Buddha of your own mind. This will only happen if you save yourselves and obey yourselves. And then he says, you didn't need to come here, which is true, right? It's, it's like us. We don't need to be here. We don't need to be sitting. We don't need to do anything. But then he says, but since you have come from so far away and have gathered together, we all have a connection. Each of you should kneel down and then he's going to do the, the incense offering. But he says again and again, we all have a connection. And it's very true. We have a connection somehow, somehow from whatever happened in the past, our karma led us to this. And it's not random and it's not by chance. We have done things or we have avoided things that have helped us realize that there is something here beyond what the eye can see, beyond what the mind can think or conjure up. So, so those are the connections, or, or this is what he means by we all have a connection. And then, so he says, everyone, each one should kneel down. And then he says, first, I will transmit the five sticks of Dharma body incense of your own nature. Then I will teach you the formless repentance. As everyone knelt, he said, first, is the incense of morality. When your minds are free of wrong, free of evil, free of envy and jealousy, free of greed and anger, free of robbery and malice. This is called the incense of morality. Second is the incense of meditation. When you see things that are good and evil and your mind is not upset, this is called the incense of meditation. Equanimity, the ability to not follow, to not get triggered by or to work on that. Third is the incense of wisdom. When your mind is free of obstructions and you always contemplate your own nature with wisdom and you don't, and you don't commit evils and even though you perform good deeds, your mind remains detached and you respect those above you and you care for those below you and you sympathize with the orphaned, with the orphaned and the destitute. This is called the incense of wisdom. Fourth is the incense of liberation. When your mind does not cling to anything and you do not think about good or evil, but are free and unobstructed, this is called the incense of liberation. And fifth is the incense of knowledge of liberation. Once your mind does not cling to anything good or evil, you must not submerge yourself in emptiness or cling to stillness, but must study and learn from many sources. When you recognize your own mind and you master the truth of the Buddhas and you soften your light when you interact with others and you remain free of self and other and your, your true nature doesn't change as you proceed straight to enlightenment, this is called the instance of the knowledge of liberation. Good friends, let these sticks of incense sweeten the air within you. Do not look for them somewhere else. I, I just love that last line. Let them sweeten the air within you. Let them remind you that you are eternal, that you are everything. 
So let them sweeten the air within you. So any uh, thoughts about that? Any comments or questions? So instead of writing it in the text, how about if you say it? that Lisa? No. Yes, good morning, Hi. Lisa. Yes, good morning. Yeah, I was just thinking how um, the act of letting go of the um, separation can be viewed as an act of courage because um, just thinking about the way um, our survival works, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you see a beautiful tiger approaching you, you cannot enjoy a sense of oneness, right? And, and merger with this beautiful animal because, you know, you have to have a gut instinct to run for your life. So um, similarly, when we encounter things inside ourselves or things in the society that trigger things that we don't accept for whatever reason, right? Survival in the society, for instance, it's our it's also a survival, it's, it's huge for our survival, right? Because we survived as species as, as a society. So those things also kind of threaten our sense of survival. Mm -hmm. So I'm just thinking how, you know, what a big, um, what an incredible act of courage it is right. to recognize this oneness. Yeah, definitely courage. Uh, also, uh, so survival I think we have, because we have created, because we are creating a, a separate sense of existence or a self, we have confused the sense or the, the survival mechanism and then the survival mechanism works to defend what's not there. So when we become defensive, I'm not, we're not talking about a tiger, but when you meet a tiger, if you don't run, you will unify very quickly with the tiger or the tiger will unify with you. But uh, yes, yeah, so running away does make a lot of sense. But that's not the same as retaliating when somebody is calling us a name that we don't like. Or so that then again we confuse the uh, the sense of uh, or the natural way of protecting oneself, right? So so of course there is fight or flight. We have created something else out of that, right? And and the defensive mechanism acts out very quickly uh, when it doesn't need to. We get stressed out. We, be, we, we feel certain ways, right, about other people, about ourselves. But we have to examine what, it is that, what is it that we are protecting. Protecting the body and running away is natural. Protecting a self or an identity that we created is made up. And it does take courage to see that, right, and to let go of what we have created. Which again, we, we talk in terms of letting go when there is nothing there to let go of. But it makes sense that we will talk in such terms. So yes, courage. Very important. Thank you. Anyone else? Okay. 20. Good friends, while I confer on you the formless precepts, you must all experience this for yourself. Recite this together with me and it will enable you to see the three-bodied Buddha within you. So first he says, 
I take refuge in the pure Dharma body, Buddha, in my own material body. In my own material body. That's turning to what is, rather than externalizing that. Then I take refuge in the myriad fold transformation body, Buddha, in my own material body. Right? So I take refuge in the future and perfect realization body, Buddha, in my own material body. Now I recite this three times. This material body is an inn and not, fit, and not a fit refuge. But the three bodies I just mentioned are your ever-present Dharma nature. Everyone ha has them. But because people are deluded, they don't see them. They look for the three-bodied Tathagata outside themselves and do not see the three-bodied Buddha in their own material body. In this physical body, he's saying. And what Winang is saying here is, is actually quite radical. Conventionally, conventionally, we see ourselves, we see this body, limited, small, or insufficient, since this body we have identified with is naturally subjected to wear and tear and it will eventually perish, regardless of how hard we try to preserve it. <clears throat> While this is true in regard to the form of this body, it is only relatively true in relation to its formlessness or the formlessness of the body or essential nature. It is true that this body is disintegrating and therefore temporal, but it is equally true that it is timeless and indestructible. Now, seeing only the form of the body and not realizing its timelessness is the delusion Huineng is talking about. Right? Seeing, on, seeing that the body is only falling apart, right? And then wanting to attach our identity to that creates suffering. Naturally, it's going to create suffering because it will not obey that. Because it obeys something much greater than what we think or than, than our interpretations of it or our fears. Right? The body is already obeying something much greater than its temporal existence. Already obeying that. We are confused. We don't see that. And what he's saying here is that you want to find a Buddha? Look at yourself. There is no Buddha outside, as, as uh, Bodhidharma said. A part of that, there is no Buddha. Because the form is essentially formless. So the, 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 what we call the temporal existence is, it's true that it's temporal on one level, but on another level, it is also true that it is eternal. Or as Suzuki said, we die and we do not die is the right understanding. At once, Again, we have to be careful not to create duality from that. It's not that, well, we die and then we don't die. The dying and non-dying happens simultaneously. Because at the moment of birth, we are not born. And at the moment of death, we don't die. This is what we chant, right, in, 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 the, in the morning service. So again and again, there is no eye, there is no nose, there is no ear, there is no life, there is no death. 
no birth and death. And, and freedom comes from realizing the essence within the form and the form within the essence, not as two. So, any thoughts about that? Any comments? Does it feel abstract? It's, maybe that's a good question to, to look at. Does it feel abstract to us or do we feel it somehow in this material body, as he says? Are we too shocked to speak? Mukan, go. Seems like you want to say something. I mean, it, it's... I guess it's very much in the nature of our practice, right? It, um, it appears abstract to us when we try to to freeze it, make it something static, make it something that we put on like a, you know, a, a lab table or a Petri dish or something to kind of dissect and look at. Mm -hmm. But we perceive it and, and get glimpses of it and we let it go every time because you can't catch it because the minute you catch it, it freezes, <laughs> you know, it's, it's dead um, in a lot of ways. So it's, it's abstract if we try to put defining words on it to get back to kind of what we were talking about earlier of trying to make it something reducible to a dictionary definition or you know, those are just guide guideposts in a way, but it's understanding that these things are always in a state of becoming and alive, um, mm -hmm. you know, and it's something to, to, you know, it's, again, we, it happens in ways we don't perceive, but it's happening all the same, mm -hmm. uh, even if it can't be witnessed uh, empirically. And, you know, it, just one last point, I guess, to something somebody, what we were saying earlier about survival, and, and kind of that separation is, it, it's also interesting the ways in which we survive and kind of respond to traumatic instances or fight or flight responses is by changing and morphing. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's rather than staying static or protecting something, the way we protect is to change, mm -hmm. um, evolve. Um, and so kind of the ways that we're trying to you know, uh, come to terms with what's happening and what Hui Neng is describing, we do it intuitively, mm -hmm. constantly. We just don't perceive it. So it's something to think about. Right, we don't perceive it because we are distracted or we distract ourselves, right? So while it's happening, as you were saying, we are not um, experiencing it. We're experiencing something else. So, so to, to make it less abstract, we can use the breath. We can take, go, go back into the breathing, right? To our breathing process. And the breath is constantly unite. Well, we can see it as uniting inside and outside constantly, right? There is constant merging happening all the time. So what we, and it's, it's the breath itself is removing the barrier between reality and the body, between self and other. It is always a swinging door, as Suzuki called it, right? It is, it's constantly moving. Without breath, there is no, the, the, the body will not survive. So the breath is exactly that. 
We don't see, like many things, we take it for granted. We just, well, yeah, I'm breathing, like, so what? Big deal. Except for when we can't breathe, then it's a big deal. But we don't see it as, as something that important, but it is constantly teaching. No in, no out. Or no in without out and no out without in. Maybe that's better. So breathe. If you feel confused, breathe. Okay, uh, I'm going to keep going. Good friends, listen to this good friend of yours, referring to himself. And I will tell you, good friends, how to see within your material body, the three-bodied Buddha present in your Dharma nature. The three-bodied Buddha that arise from this nature of yours. What do we mean by the pure Dharma body Buddha? Good friends, everyone's nature is fundamentally pure. And the 10,000 Dharmas are present in this nature. If we think about doing something bad, we commit bad deeds. And if we think about doing something good, we perform good deeds. Thus, we know all Dharmas are present in our nature. But our nature itself remains pure. The sun and moon are always shining. It is only due to cloud, to cloud cover that there is light above but darkness below and we can see the sun or moon or stars. Then suddenly the wind of wisdom comes along and blows the clouds and drives the fog away. And the panorama of 10,000 images appear all at once. Our nature is pure like the clear sky above, and our wisdom is like the sun and the moon. Our wisdom is always shining. But if externally we become attached to objects, the clouds of delusion cover up our nature, and we can't see. These are kleshas, as it is referred to. Then, because we meet a good friend who explains the true teachings, our delusions are blown away and everything inside and outside becomes perfectly clear. And the 10,000 dharmas in this nature of ours will all appear. This nature of ours in which the 10,000 dharmas are present is what we mean by the pure dharma body. Those of you who take refuge in yourselves, if you get rid of bad thoughts and bad practices, this is called taking refuge. So uh, I do want to hear what you have to say about it, but I want to read a little bit from Harada about that. Zen is not about gaining something external. It is about becoming quieter and quieter as thoughts stop coming and going, about realizing the origin of that which is seeing and hearing. When we realize this, we clearly see that we have never been born and will never die. We are not something that is beautiful or ugly, not something that increases or decreases. Realizing this, we're able to settle deeply into that which reflects us externally as we are. The sixth patriarch explains that no, no matter what comes along, no matter what terrible situation arises, it is only phenomena passing by the window of our mind. This doesn't mean we shouldn't feel deeply, but we don't have to be pulled and moved around by what we feel and experience. And then he adds, no matter how much zazen you do, the stock market will, is not going to get better. No, our politics going to improve. 
But if you let go of, of the things on which you're stuck, you can see clearly how to respond appropriately to whatever happens. So, yeah, is that clear? Is that uh, workable? Doable? Daibo? Um, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he appears to be giving us the basic instruction, right? Like just the fundamental instruction of, of not to be attached to things. And he uses examples of things which we obviously can't control, you know, where, you know, obviously in our lives, things become much more nuanced and nuanced where we feel that we have some semblance of control over things. Um, when really that may not be the case at all. Yeah. But what he's saying here is that within that, within that large, uh, expansive mind, right, everything comes and goes, right? So if thoughts come and the thoughts are, they have a certain direction, if we follow those thoughts, that's the direction we will go. If we follow these kind of thoughts, that's the direction we will go, right? So while it is wide open, it is important to examine, right, on the go, because there is nothing fixed. It can go in any direction, any direction, right? So, so the way we function matters, right? So there is wisdom, right? And whether or not we actualize wisdom is, is very important. That's the question, right? Are we actually seeing that? Because we start to go in one direction, that's the direction we will maintain. That's the course we will maintain. Right, you know, and, and Wee Nang talks about it in, in one of the previous sections, I think. Um, I don't know exactly what number it was, but um, 19, you know, he says um, uh, in, the, in the commentary that um, instead of providing us with a set of rules, practicing means no rules, no internal obstructions, no external projections. Right. Um, so that, that's what you're talking about there, that, that following the good and the bad. Um, it's exactly it. Right. And, and that's the, and that's the, uh, that's the, 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 the dilemma, right? No rules. Right. And, and that's not no rules. I don't, I don't believe in a negation. I think it's a liberation, right? The, the no rules, um, which is the difficult part. Right. It's the difficult part because, and that's where courage is needed, right? Because it takes, it takes, because we, we want parameters, we, we want parameters. We want fixed parameters of self and other. Right. Self-definition is, is what we sit on, is what we walk on, is how we communicate with other people with, right? It's with, it's with that that we communicate with each other. So if I don't know, if I cannot define as fixed, if I cannot define myself as something fixed, then what? Then how do I function? Right? And it's not negating, as you were saying, it's not negating the usage of. But as long as we understand that it is, it is for that purpose, right? As long as we understand, that's fine, that we could use it. If we don't understand it, it becomes fixed. And we become right. fixed and you become. So others 
become fixed in our we become fixed in our own mind, others become fixed in the same mind. Mm -hmm. Never mind that it's not true. It becomes true. Right, and it becomes the basis, as you said before, you know, the second noble truth, it becomes the basis for all suffering. Yes, exactly. That, and that's what parameters, walls, divisions become, uh, create that. They become fixed and they create that, yes. Yep. So, Bipoda says, this nature of ours is the source of all dharmas, all thoughts, even all objects. But when we turn this sorry, concopia, multitude of magic, into a quagmire of delusion, when we separate ourselves from dharma and thoughts and objects, and dharmas from dharmas, and thoughts from thoughts, and objects from objects, thus, Winnegg urges us to take refuge in, the, in the, this triple-bodied nature of ours and in the 10,000 realities that arise from it and that lead us back to our nature because they are our nature. So the 10,000 dharmas, right? This is referring to everything. 10,000 is just a large number, but it is an infinite number of appearances. Everything is essentially, so all particulars are always expressions of totality. And uh, Tsung Pao edition has it a bit differently. It says, 10,000 dharmas are produced from our nature. So, so all things are produced from our nature because all things are essentially our nature. Or our nature is the same nature of all things. Right? So, so to let go of the self is to, as Dogen said, be verified by all things. So to let go of what we think we are is to find ourselves in everything. But as long as I'm holding on to what I think I am, I cannot find myself in all things. How can I be this? I'm already that. I know who I am. Knowing who I am, I also say I, I know who I'm not. I'm not good. I'm unsuccessful. I'm bad. I'm good. Whatever. Right? So there we, once I create this, I create its opposite. Or also, we can say, once I create myself, I create you. Right? The creation of me is the creation of you, a part of me. And the cessation of the creation of me is also the cessation of the creation of you. Then self and other are dropped. So... Then he says, reality itself can be positive or negative depending on the context. Winning uses it in a positive sense and simply to refer to the never-ending river of thoughts that arise from and that consti constitute our mind. Arise from and constitute our mind. So where are we at with this? We have a couple more minutes. We should probably wrap it up. Yes. Raise on, go. Right. I think um, one thing with Hui Nang is um, when he's saying good friends, um, it's not um, 
incidental or accidental. And in this part, when he says even more specifically, because when we meet good friends who explain the true teaching, our delusions are blown away and so on. Um, other people are necessary to the practice. Um, the practice is not a, um, a solo adventure in which we are um, fighting against all these forces within us and then we can triumph at some point. Um, but other people are constantly needed to um, keep us um, aware of all the different ways in which we keep configuring ourselves because it's endless I and mean, we don't stop the configuring of ourselves. It just keeps happening over and over again, maybe in ever more subtle ways, but uh, other people are absolutely essential to that process. Uh, and it's, um, I find that to be a very um, um, powerful part of what Huineng presents, that he is constantly, I mean, he's not putting himself as a teacher that's going to raise us to some point where we can then be independent and um, be able to do everything for ourselves. He's constantly saying, we're all in this together mm -hmm. uh, and we need each other. Right, and, and good friends, uh, the good in the good friends is not good uh, uh, as opposed to bad. Right, the goodness is is that essential nature he's talking about, right? So we get together because somewhere, somehow, we have a glimpse of that, or we've had a glimpse of that, and that glimpse, or that, those glimpses, brought us together. If it wasn't for those glimpses of that goodness, or that pure, pure reality, as he's referring to, we would not get together to do this. Right, there is that. Now, the, the, the alone, we do practice alone because it, it's not solitude, but it's alone as all one. So the word alone in this case will be all one. We practice as one. We get together to practice as one. And so while we are doing that, each one of us sits and has to do, deal with whatever arises within us. So our instructions are the same. The way we go through that is different. Or, or the way we experience the process must be different, right? Because we're unique. Equally precious, but differently unique, we can say. So this Dharma is equal, no high, no low. Diamond Sutra. Wonderful gateway. This Dharma is equal. Everybody, everything. Why? Because everything is the one mind. Okay, so we will, uh, we will finish with that and we'll uh, continue next time. All right, take good care and thank you for being here.